Fred Hampton saw what all of us have in common. He saw the common denominator, right, of poverty, of struggle, of needing to heal. So when he was talking about, oh, we need to bring down the man, he wasn't just talking to black people. He was talking to white people. He was talking to Latinx people. He was talking to indigenous people, people who are all struggling, right, and saying, like, listen— that Confederate flag that you're waving, that you know that that robe in your closet that was handed down by your daddy hasn't done nothing but leave you in a lurch, right? What does it look like for us all to come together, us all to think about what's happening in front of us, us all to heal, and then go to the establishment and say enough? Hello, friends. Welcome to the Let's Give a Damn podcast. I'm your host, Nick Lapara. And this is the show you come to when you want to hear from people who are giving a damn and making the world a much better place in so many unique and meaningful ways. Thank you for hitting play. Thank you for showing up this week. And most of all, thank you for joining us on this journey toward leaving the planet much better than we found it. I am deeply honored to introduce you to my guest this week, Frederick Joseph. Fred is an anti-racist activist a philanthropist, a 2019 Forbes 30 Under 30 list maker, a recipient of the 2018 Comic-Con Humanitarian of the Year Award, and an incredible author. His books include The Black Friend, written in 2020, Patriarchy Blues, released in May of this year, and he has another book coming out later this year called Better Than We Found It. Plus, he contributed to another really cool book that you'll definitely want to get and that he hints at during our conversation. During our conversation, we spend quite a bit of time talking about his most recent book, Patriarchy Blues, which examines the culture of masculinity through the lens of a black man. Also, Fred has a massive heart for helping people. In 2018, Frederick Joseph launched the Hashtag Black Panther Challenge on GoFundMe in an effort to promote representation and inclusion by raising more than $1 million to send 73,000 children of color to see the movie Black Panther, of course, at no cost. And during the pandemic, Fred raised 40000 for the Food Bank of New York City, and he raised over $1 million to help over 5,000 families with expenses during COVID-19. This conversation challenged me and helped me greatly, and I trust that it will do the same for you. Before we begin, as always, a quick reminder that you can email me at hello at letsgiveadam.com anytime and for any reason to ask questions, recommend future guests, tell me how much you love or hate the show, anything goes. I just love hearing from you. And now, let's get right into my conversation with the brilliant Frederick Joseph. Let's go. Fred Joseph, welcome to the Let's Give a Damn podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, what's the T for? <laughs> so the T is interesting. It's actually my mother's maiden name. Um it's technically not actually my middle name at all. Okay. Um, my middle name is Jose. I'm I'm actually the 
third, I'm Frederick Jose Joseph. So it's like Frederick Jose Jose to a certain extent. But I'm named after my father, who's not around. So I kind of switched the middle initial to kind of like identify myself a little differently. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I yeah. like that. And where did the Jose come from? Is there a Latino yeah, background? Yeah, yeah, yeah. My, my, my biological father, he's uh, Afro-Cuban. Got it. Yeah. Got yeah. it. Um, before we – there's so much we're going to talk about today. I'm so pleased to meet you. I've uh, been so grateful for your influence, for your voice uh, since I encountered it last year. Uh, unfortunately, it took me till last year to <laughs> hear who you were. Uh, but before we jump into this book and the books and all the work that you're doing, let's talk about right now. Yeah. Our current reality. And I hate to jump right in, but things are heavy. Shit's heavy. And so why not start with a little bit of heaviness? Uh, you know, three weeks ago, mass shooting, Buffalo, New York. 10 dead in a grocery store. Um, last week, Uvalde, Texas, 21 dead at school. Yesterday, Oklahoma, Tulsa, Oklahoma, four dead in a hospital. Mm. And, and I didn't even, I, I spanned three weeks there. I didn't mention all of them. There are more that we could mention. Those are the ones that made the news more than the others. Um, and there's not really a connection here, but I just I, I, I thought of it immediately. Yesterday in Tulsa, Oklahoma, that shooting on the day after the 101st anniversary of the Tulsa race massacre. Again, we don't know if it was racially motivated, but that that blood is still being spilt on that blood-stained soil, right? The worst atrocity in mm -hmm. racial atrocity in American history that so many people don't know about Tulsa race massacre. Um and beyond what has happened, beyond these innocent lives that have been taken, what's been so hard for me, what's made it even harder is that so many of our politicians, so many of our lawmakers, the people that can actually get shit done mm. aren't. And they're waxing eloquent and they're pontificating and they're, you know, going on six-minute diatribe is about how, you know, it's mental health and it's not guns and don't take away our rights and blah, blah, blah. And, um, yeah, and I'm only mentioning shootings. I'm only mentioning gun violence, yeah. right? We could talk yeah. about all the other stuff that's going on. Yeah. Um, how, how are you feeling about all of that? How have you been processing through it? And generally, how are you? I, I, I think... Um in terms of how I'm feeling about all of it, you know, I, I think the word a lot of people use is tired. I, I'm beyond that. Um, I, I, I was tired before the pandemic happened. Um, now I am, I, I feel like a piece of my soul is missing. Um, you know, that, you know, there's parts of me that are gone that I'll never get back. I think that there's parts of our society that are gone that we'll never get back, right? The the very things that make us human in the in the most beautiful and best ways, some of them are lost, right? Um, lost for generations um, and maybe lost forever. I'm not really sure. Uh, I, I, I think that part of it, um, for me at least, does have to do with being in the work, right? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I exist in this way, you know, whether it's because of the things I write about or because of the things I talk about via social media or, you know, the things that I, I talk about in the news, so on and so forth. I exist in this way where I, I don't, I don't just experience things, I suppose. I, I, I have to also assess them. 
uh, analyze them, uh, and then put something out from that analysis that helps people conceptualize so that we can do more, do better. Um, but you know, there's just so much and, and there's no turning it off. Even right now, you know, like outside of my work, if you wanted to turn off, you know, let's say, uh, the news, right. It's, it's a part of sports. If you want to turn off sports, it's a part of music. You want to turn off music as a part of film, right? It's everywhere, all of it at all times. Um, yeah. So it's, it's heavy. It's true that those of us that have chosen, my work is a bit different than yours, but we're in, we both give a damn. We both have put ourselves in positions where people look to us for when these things happen, right? So your, your average Joe and Sally can shut these things off, even if they have to bounce around, right? It is everywhere. You can't really shut it off, but they can hear something and leave it for, you know, they can shut off, they can delete Twitter, they can do this, they can do, they can remove themselves from seeing, hearing, experiencing these things. There are some of us that it's so hard to do that because A, we care about it. We give a shit about it. Mm -hmm. We want to do something about it. Mm -hmm. And B, whether it's a small crowd or a large crowd, there are people that are waiting for us. They're depending on us to hear it, receive it. Mass shooting, 19 children massacred, police didn't do anything, you know, all the information coming in Mm -hmm. and then give them something, whether it's marching orders, how to be a better activist, how to be a better listener, what to do, where to go, who to donate to, right? They're waiting for, they follow certain people to get those next steps from. So you can't really turn it off. You can, but then you're disappointing, you know, the, not the fan base, but the people that you have uh, told that you're going to help. I want to help you. Yeah. I mean, and I, and I think a lot of times I think to myself, well, if not you, then who, right? Because the issue is that we have a society with a lot of people who like to kick the can down the road or, you know, a lot of people who like to, you know, turn the things off, turn the other way, not, you know, pay attention. Um, You know, and then there's this major push right now, I think for toxic positivity, Um, you know, and people like, Oh my God, everything's so heavy and everything. Can we just be a little lighter? And yes, things are heavy, but us lying about it is not going to change anything, right? Us pretending it's not happening is not going to change anything. Um, and in that way, I do think that the work that people such as yourself and, and me and so many others are trying to do is, is so important. It's, it's, it's crucial because, you know, we're at this moment in history. Um, we're at an inflection point. And, you know, and I don't say this um, hyperbolically. We're literally at an inflection point where we are going to decide whether this world is going to be around or not, right? Like from all angles, if it's, if it's not climate change, then it's, you know, then it's racial justice. If it's not racial justice, then it's bodily autonomy. If it's not, you know, those things, then it's like class warfare. Um, and I do think that we can fix it, right? Like, like, I, like, I, like we can, and that's the thing that I think hurts so Badly, it's like, you know, even looking at gun violence um, to tie back to what you originally started with, you know, these mass shootings, I, I, I think when you live in America and you've only been in America and, and your your lens and your perspective and your vantage point is is so deeply American, you, you normalize these things because you're desensitized and you might not know these things don't happen around the world, right? These things don't happen everywhere. You know, when, you know, there was a, there was a mass shooting in the UK, I believe 26 years ago. Yep, it was Scotland. A, yeah, yep. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, they had a school shooting 
And they immediately, they immediately instituted policies so that for the next 26 years or so. Not a one. Not a singular one. Since Columbine, we have had a ramp up in mass shootings in schools and in other spaces. And that's not because video games, it's not because of mental health, it's not because of uh, violent music or films, it's because of our policies around guns. All those things I just named exist everywhere else in the world. It is because of our policies around guns. The the level of willful ignorance is what astounds me, is what breaks me. Because they will get up there, they being the Ted Cruz's, the Josh Hawley's, the, you know, these, these mostly men, you still have your Marjorie Taylor Greens and your Lauren Boebert's, but they get up there and they keep, they keep sharing a story, sharing a narrative that has been unequivocally and overwhelmingly debunked. Mm -hmm. Like it doesn't work. The data's not there. The statistics aren't there. Everywhere on the planet, they have video games. Uh, the richest of the rich countries, the poorest of the poor countries, they've got video games. They've got mental health issues. They've got fatherless homes. Mm-hmm. All the things that they put, they've, they've got it all, mm-hmm. and yet they don't have this. They don't have this. I, I, was, I was thinking about the amount of guns that we have in this country, 394 million, 330 million people. That's 121 guns for every 100 people. And, and those 393 million guns are in 50 million Households. Mm-hmm. That means that that's what is that? Uh, seven and a half guns per household. Yeah. But I know a lot of people yeah. that have yeah. one gun. Yeah. So that means there are homes out there with 15, 20, 30, 40 guns, yeah. right? Yep. Like this is, it is insane, the very definition of insane mm-hmm. to keep doing the same bullshit over and over again expecting a different result. Yeah. So they gave us the talking points after you know, Buffalo. Mm-hmm. Then a week and a half later, Uvalde. They gave us the same talking points. Stop trying to politicize this. Don't that your people are still grieving, blah, 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 blah. And then it happens again in Oklahoma. It's going to happen. Like I'm sitting around on pins and needles just waiting for the next fucking like tweet yeah. where it's going to be like, oh, another one's happening here. Active shooter, this and that. And where's it going to be next? Grocery store, hospital, school. Like, where is it next? Again, in a church, another, another subway. subway, right? Like, it's truly remarkable. And it's truly heartbreaking that we have so many, and we'll talk about some of those, one being patriarchy and the, the ramifications of our patriarchal society. These are things that we can fix, man. Yeah. These are things that we can fix. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I mean... But we, we don't fix them because so much power, privilege, and access is owned by such a small group, right? You would think, based on what you see in this country, that, you know, the the Ted Cruz's and the um, Lauren Boebert's and the Josh Holloway's and these people are the majority, and they're actually not. No. Right? They are not. When you look at support for progressive policies across the board, not just not just in terms of gun violence, but in terms of free education, in terms of healthcare, so on and so forth, that is the majority of this country. But we, for various reasons, um, we have let this group amass so much power. And I think in part, it's because of the fact that, you know, the, the other side, let's say the, the quote unquote big tent, right, of the left, um, yep. which is inclusive, inclusive of liberals and centrists and, you know, 
leftists and progressives, the leadership of that group, a lot of the things they do are toothless, right? They, they like th- there is a spine that is lacking, and there's a certain level of decorum that they are playing by that doesn't exist. Respectability politics that have gone out the window, and I think the danger is that we saw Donald Trump like throw all of it out, right? So like the right is just like, yeah, whatever. By you know, not to leverage a Malcolm quote to talk about them, but by any means necessary, right? And I think that that's the personality. And the fortitude that I want to see from the left, right? Because you're not talking about like for them, they're like, oh, by any means necessary, we're going to we're going to keep our guns. So then, what I would like to see in return is, by any means necessary, we're going to get rid of our guns, right? But we're not seeing that. No, and 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 to your point, and I want to make it very clear, this is not even a right and left thing. Mm-hmm. It's establishment, right? Right, right. I, I I tweeted something this morning about this event. I mean, Pride Month just started, right? And there's this event happening at the White House. You know, Nancy Pelosi was putting out this press release with Reagan, Nancy Reagan and Louis DeJoy, DeJoy, the, the, yeah, the, the postmaster, who should be fired, who should be now. fired yeah. and maybe in jail yeah. and who was a talking head for Donald Trump. That's the esteemed guest at this event. So it's again, it's not right or left. It is the establishment, the people that have much to gain. I have no problem with, well, I do have a problem with it, but I'm not even talking about Nancy uh, Pelosi's, you know, tens of millions and hundreds of millions of dollars, her worth, right? whatever. But, but that is part of it. It is those people that have, that are untouchable, that can spend 40, 50 years in a political position, not actually doing all that much, but they have the power, they have the, they have the monopoly, they have the votes, they have the, this, they're the problem because they are, why would I, why would they try, even try to change a systemic problem? Right. Because they've got it made. Right. If they upset this system, whether it's the police or the prison system or debt relief or whatever it is, their position is at risk. Right. Right. No, that's a, that's a thousand percent correct. I, I, I think that it's just you know when i see things like that you know the louis de joy and nancy reagan and and even the way that the the obamas and the bidens redeemed george uh bush junior uh just things like that i'm just like man it if people realize that we are all a part of the same hypocrisy, right? If people yep. realize, like if people could get away from their bigotry for a second, right? If people could say like, hey, um, I grew up in Kansas and I didn't know any black people. And if and if men could say, hey, you know, I grew up in a patriarchal household, but I want to step away from some of that. If people stepped away from white supremacy and stepped away from uh, patriarchy and all these various manifestations of the two, we could actually see you're all being used. Like you are absolutely all being used because at the end of the day, I've heard Joe Biden say plenty of times that Mitch McConnell's one of his greatest friends, right? Like, and so, you know, and, and all the, these, these, these establishment power brokers are all in space together, you know, communicating with each other, keeping the status quo together, right? While we fight amongst ourselves, kill each other, so on and so forth, right? Like, you know, if you want to, like, they've been talking about mental health a lot because of, you know, gun violence. It's so much more than that, obviously. But if we wanted to talk about mental health for a second, I heard um, Greg Abbott bring that up. Oh, it's a mental health issue, not a guns issue in Texas. Well, Greg Abbott, I think two months before that had cut 900 
uh, million dollars or something like that. I don't know. The 211 million. 211 million. But still. Yeah, yeah. A massive, I mean, yes, a massive amount, millions and millions of dollars um, from mental health uh, initiatives in Texas. But then turns around, you know, weeks later and is decrying mental health as the issue. Like these people are just all spinning, you know, the same uh, web that Charlotte was spinning, really. You know what I mean? It's just lies. Yeah, it really is. It's, it's, it's heartbreaking. Um, so basically, how are you feeling? All the, all, all the things. <laughs> yeah, right, all right, the right, right, right. Um, you were born and raised in Yonkers, New York. Yep. So you've been in New York. I mean, that, and that's a suburb of New York City. You know, it's, it's, how far, like nowadays, how far would it take, how long would it take to get up there? Uh, so I grew up a three-minute walk from the Bronx. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So like, yeah. So like Yonkers and Mount Vernon border the Bronx. Um, so Yonkers actually, ironically, just a little history moment, used to be a part of New York City. Um, it was a part of the Bronx, and then it was split um, at some point um, in, like, the 1700s or something like that. But it was actually a part of uh, New York City for some time. But, um, you know, the Metro North from Grand Central to, like, where I grew up is 13 minutes. Yeah, not yeah, bad. Yeah, 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 yeah. But it wasn't New York City. No. That it, it, it didn't. So <laughs> tell me about the your your upbringing uh, and we'll get to why you ultimately, you know, came here for school and otherwise. Yeah. Um, the people and places and things that influenced you growing up. Yeah. Um, Yonkers was rough. I, I think that when I was in high school in Yonkers, um, it had one of the highest murder rates in the country. Um, you know, a, a very hard place to grow up because I think that when people think of New York, people think of New York City, right? People aren't thinking of, um, you know, Ithaca or Buffalo or Binghamton or Yonkers and Yonkers. Yeah. Yonkers is right there as opposed to like Buffalo, which is I think like six hours right. away. Um, but it's not right there. It's actually a world away. And I think that's one of the things about New York in general, even New York city is you can like, I, I live in Long Island city right now. And a lot of people I live near are, they're very affluent people. Um, you know, I, a lot of people who are free to you in and whatnot and Queensbridge, the largest, um, you know, municipal housing project in the country is right there you know queens yep. where nas and, and whatnot are from but you would never know it right like like you would never know that you both sit on the same um on the same uh east river right like it just doesn't feel like it because they're they make it so that it doesn't and i think yonkers was very much like that whereas like you you are in proximity to the city, but it's very apparent that you will never have those opportunities. You're not getting them. And then um, Yonkers from the other end. So on one side, you have New York City, like let's say to your left, if you look at the Hudson, and then to your right, you have the most affluent suburb in the country, right? In 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 the upper Westchester suburbs, uh, Scarsdale and Chappaqua. You're talking about where the Clintons live and George Soros and people like that, right? Like, But you're not from either. You're from this you know, the bowels, I suppose, of, of New York in many ways. Um, so it's hard. There's, there's no programs catered to, to growth. There was, there, there was none of that existed. Not nothing. There was nothing there. There, you know, there's no mass transportation system really. There's like buses, but like, you know, if you don't have a car, you can't even get around. Right. And we didn't have the money for a car. So like, you know, you're talking about now if I was driving, let's say, from one part of Yonkers to, like, another part of Yonkers, it might take me a 10-minute drive. When I was growing up to, like, 
keep things segregated, you know, the bus system would take two and a half hours to oh, get. God. Yeah. Um, you're talking about transferring four different buses. It, so, you know, there was a lot of segregation. It was actually the, the school system there was one of the last school systems in the country desegregated, as a matter of fact. They had to do, there's a, there's a, uh, a short film, I believe, on HBO called like Show Me a Hero or something like that about the busings that they had to do in the late 80s because Yonkers was so segregated. So, yeah. My my first uh, reference point for Yonkers was watching Hello, Dolly! as a kid, <laughs> right? Because that's where uh, Dolly Levi spends a lot of time, you know, coming in and out of the city, but going up to Yonkers. And it looks like this, like, and it probably was way back then, this quaint, you know, very affluent town. Again, it, it, what it appears in, in the, the movie. And then when I was a kid, I went to Yonkers. And I, my first time in Yonkers was we arrived at night uh-huh. and it was raining. And it was not, you know, it looked nothing like, it was kind of a weird culture shock because it was, this. so this would have been in the, the the 90s yeah was my first time there and um yeah it was not like <laughs> like in hello dolly it's it's quite a, quite a wild place yeah it's uh i mean people have to also realize so like you know i think a lot of people think uh it depends on where you're from but some people think hello dolly and then other people think dmx right dmx sure. is dmx and and the rough riders and the locks and mary j blige um, are all from Yonkers. Um, Steven Tyler was actually born in Yonkers um, and got out very, very quickly, apparently. <laughs> but, but like, these people are, you know, Yonkers is rough. So if you ever, you know, when you hear certain songs from the 90s, especially in rap and hip-hop, I think um, it was, like, 50 Cent or something like that. And he was like, yeah, like, the hardest people in New York might be from Yonkers, right? Like, it, it was rough. But I, but I think that there's a certain, like, hunger and, and, and just, I don't know, Je ne sais quoi or something like that that people from New York have. Right. But Yonkers has at times a billion because we're like, like I think people from New York are like hustlers, right? People from Yonkers are kind of like, oh, we're hustlers and we will like literally take what the hustlers made. You know, like it's like when I came down to the city, I was like, oh, I want all of it. Everything that you have, you have. I want it all, right? Because I've had nothing. There's no museums. There's no Central Park. There's no, you know, whatever. Yeah, there's no sports Yeah, teams. like at least <laughs> like one one of the ways that survival in Manhattan, for example, is, is survivable is that there's so many amazing things around. So it's a right, hard life. Right, right. But you get this hard life along with just the many amazing things here, parks and museums and shows and, you know, the theater district. And, like, I'm going to Hamilton twice this week. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. that doesn't happen if you're in Yonkers or if you're yeah. in other places that are bad. And so – or not bad, but hard, hard yeah, to live yeah, in. Yeah, 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 So, yeah, not having that would – Feel a little hopeless. Yeah, and I'd, I'd say specifically to being to being black, right? Like, like using Manhattan, like Harlem is the epicenter of like black artistic culture and black renaissance, black black revolution rather, like globally, like for a lot of people. And you know, so I'm not from somewhere like that. Brooklyn is Brooklyn is Brooklyn, right? Yeah. Like where it's like Brooklyn is you know this like kind of like hard, but like utopian black world right where like these amazing people come out of and there's this all this like community and history is none of that is existing so now you're black in a hard place and also surrounded basically by like 
essentially like white supremacists and like white establishment and things like that, right? So it's like not only are you dealing with a hard life because it's just a hard place to grow up, but now you're also, let's say, going to school um, in on the other side of town, let's say because of the busings, with like the senator's kid. You know, like, right. and and like you're treated as the kid whose mom makes twenty thousand a year, but you're going to school with kids whose parents spend two million in a year. Right. You know, it's 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 a lot. Who were some of the, or even one or two of the people that influenced you growing up? Yeah, I, I would say the two people who influenced me the most are probably my mother and grandmother. Um, you know, in great ways, in in not so great ways at times, but just like this, they they are the amalgamation of who I am, right? Like I I my my pieces are all parts of them. Uh, my mom, you know, she grew up, you know, in in the seventies and eighties, right? When you know the raging crack epidemic and things like that, and it hit it hit Yonkers really, really hard. You know, gang violence and and then the um, war on drugs, which was really just essentially a war on black and brown people um, in this country. And then my grandmother, who grew up in the South, she actually was doing well for herself, and the Ku Klux Klan actually um, lynched her husband, oh my and God. she had to uh, flee um the south with uh at the time two children um up to the north with nothing up here um except the clothes on her back so you know the, that's kind of the stock that i come from and like my lens on the world is um is very much influenced by by their stories the grandmother that whose husband was lynched was that on your mom's side, Thelma, or is that yes. the, that yeah, yeah 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 and and it seems from what i've read that Thelma um was also an inspiration to you becoming a writer. Yeah, yeah. So she um, wrote. She did. She did. She she was a writer. Um, she was never able to have anything published. Obviously, as a as a black woman. Um, yeah. If your living, husband's getting yeah. lynched, and, yeah, and the, yeah. they get away with it, right. you're probably not being a published author, right? Unfortunately, e exactly. Um, so you know, she went from having. Um, a small store that they owned, like a grocery store and whatnot and things like that in the South and a house. Um, so they, they not only lynched him, they actually burned the store down and, and the house down Good God. Um, to, you know, coming up here and basically like living the next 40 years of your life in the projects. Right. Um, and, and I think this, it, you know, one day I'm going to tell her full story, but it's important to, to note things like that. I think a lot of people, a lot of narratives about, you know, black people in this country, you know, in terms of like, you know, pick yourself up by the bootstraps and things like that. Even when you have, you know, done that, that nonsensical thing, um, you know, pick yourself up from the bootstraps, white supremacy so quickly can tear everything away from you, right? Like the stories of people who are um, living in, in, in these situations right now are nuanced stories. They're heavy stories. It's not for no reason, right? This is 400 years of systemic oppression that led to people being in Queensbridge, led to people being in the projects that we grew up in in Yonkers, so on and so forth. Yeah, there's so much we could get into there. But um, I did, I was hoping you would mention Thelma because I've seen you both in the book and in the New York Times and other places talk about her and her influence. Yeah. Um, before we get to your books and the book that we're going to talk about today, that congrats appreciate is it, appreciate a, it. a few weeks out, uh, already New York Times bestseller. Yeah. Um, really amazing. Congrats on that. Um, but let's talk about other work that you've done that have 
that has kind of led to this point in your life where you are speaking the way that you're speaking to the people that you're speaking to. Um, how did you, first of all, how do you describe you, you and I in different ways are these multi hyphenate sort of people <laughs> that no one up until recently, my life partner and best friend who is, we have done, had raised three kids together. We've done everything together for the last 15 years, she still struggles to tell people what I do. <laughs> My kids have no idea. They know I do this and talk to these people and record this and film this and whatever, but they just have no idea. And so I think we're similar in that where we just do yeah. a bunch of stuff. We've always yeah. got a bunch of projects going on. And so how do you describe yourself as you're thinking about the work that you do? Yeah, that's an interesting question because I have no clue to, to your point. Um, you know, <laughs> years ago, I was just a marketer. I, I went to, a lot of people don't know this, I actually got my MBA from NYU. So I, I have an MBA. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. I, have an, I have an MBA in marketing um, from Stern and uh, I have three undergraduate degrees. Um, you know, I... I was someone who was hyper-focused on being as successful as I could within, like, the systems of capitalism. And um, I think along the way – and I went into the nonprofit sector when I came out of um, business school because people suck. So, <laughs> uh, so you know, when I, when I went into the nonprofit sector and I thought that I could, like, make this big change, like, yeah. I'm coming in with an MBA, it's like, oof, this is all – we need something different. And I was like, I need to be someone different because this is not going to actually, I, I'll make money, but I'm not going to make the systemic change that I, I want to make. Um, and I, and I think I've just always kind of gravitated towards public presence. If you would, um, I was, I was a theater kid. Uh, I was a theater kid, uh, for a very long time. Um, you know, Annie, get your gun, guys and dolls, West Side Story, so on and so forth, Love right? Them all, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So um, I always had a natural knack for performance, if you would. Um, and and I, I remember when Obama was running, I was, like, watching him. I was like, man, he's just a really, really good orator. Like, outside of, like, whatever. I'm like, I don't even know if I agree with his politics or not. Like, in terms of, like, I've been kind of, like, more leftist for quite some time. But I was just like, man. The man knows how to put on a show. And I was like, I think the world needs more of that. I think the world needs more people who know how to garner a certain level of attention for the right reasons, right? Because when you when you have the wrong reasons, that's Spot how you, on. Right, you get Donald Trump, right? Like, you get people like Donald Trump. So I think that, to your point and similar to you, you know, I, I have a lot of things I'm interested in. I have a lot of things that I think I'm somewhat talented in. So I've just kind of used a hodgepodge of them to make a difference. Two things there. One is what you just said about needing more uh, showmen, show women, show people, right? People that can put on a show. I think that's totally true. I think there are a lot of people that rightly warn people against fame and influence and you get a platform, you get a big head and you fucking crash, right? And, and a lot of that is happening and fame does hurt a lot of people and influence mm -hmm. does hurt a lot of people. And, not but, and... We need more people that are mature enough that do the hard work of building a solid foundation of accountability and friends and family and mentors and that, that work their way into these positions of putting on a good show, speaking well, conveying ideas well. Because if, if people that have a right heart mm. and have the right motivations don't do that, 
people with a terrible heart yep. and terrible motivations will do it. They're going to do it because they don't give a shit that they're going to crash and burn someday, that this is bad for them. They're eating it up. Yep. So if we don't do it, if we don't speak up in ways that are compelling and bring people over to our side, to our ideas, to where we're going, someone else will. Because we're all looking for yeah. those voices and we're all looking for a path. We're all looking for leaders. We're all looking for a clique. We're all looking for a group. Mm -hmm. And so if we don't, then fucking like Jordan Peterson's going to get them. Right, right. Or Donald Trump's going to get them. Right. Or Joe Rogan's going to get them. Right. I'm just mentioning a few people yeah, that are- Yeah, that, you're 100% right. You're, you're, you are like, you are a thousand percent right. I was actually, it's so funny as I was thinking about that as we were sitting here, I'm like, man, I love Nick's voice, right? And I was like, I, I love Nick's voice because Nick has this same, you know, you, know, you, you kind of sound like a Colin Coward at in certain moments. I don't know if you know who that is. I don't. Okay, he's a, he's a sports um, whatever guy. That probably, um, yeah, I'm not a big sports guy, so yeah, that, yeah, that's he's, why. Yeah, he's a, he's I'll a, look him up. Yeah, he's a sports guy, but um, he's been um, in radio for, 30 plus years and people love him. He's a jillionaire because his voice is just so charismatic, right? He has like a welcoming voice, even when I don't agree with what he's saying. He's like, LeBron James sucks. I'm like, yeah. I don't agree, but I love you. But Kyle. I love you. Like, exactly. But I think that that's so important to have someone like yourself with your thoughts, ideas, heart, so on and so forth, who can captivate with voice, who can captivate with content, who can captivate. It, we, it's necessary because like all the people you just named, there, and there's so many more, right? There's, you know, the Ben Shapiro's and things like that. Like, like Ben Shapiro, for example, has fooled a lot of people into thinking that he's a lot smarter than he is, right? A thousand percent. Like, you know, and a lot of these guys have. You know, when I look at um, another in instance of Joe Rogan, as you said, Joe Rogan, and this is, I'm going to segue into something, but Joe Rogan's a really good example of what I feel like I don't, we don't need anyone like Joe Rogan on the left, but we do need somebody who can counteract him. If that makes sense. Right. So like, let's take myself as an example. I don't think I'm the anti Joe Rogan. Well, actually I am in many ways, but like, I don't, yeah, think I, I, I yeah. believe. Yep. But like, you know, I'm a six, Three black guy with tattoos who works out constantly and like You're fucking I, Jack, dude. <laughs> thanks. And I and I just and I love I love sports and da 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 da. And I'm also dis dismantle the patriarchy, yep. fight white supremacy. You know, help every like I'm like oh, if I had a billion dollars, I would literally spend years just walking around cities, giving out money and changing people's lives. And that's what we need more of because. We've been bullied by the Joe Rogans. We've been bullied by the J.D. Vances. We've been bullied by the Donald Trump Juniors. And when something happens, where it's like I said recently to somebody, I was like, if I was to see Ben Shapiro in the street, Ben Shapiro's like five four or something like that. But if I was to see Ben Shapiro in the street, and let's say like we got into an argument, I just like slap the shit out of Ben Shapiro. He's, he's worth a, he's worth somebody slapping the living shit out of him, right? But then I would be attacked by my own party for like, th th we shouldn't have done that. That's that's what they do, X, Y, and Z. I'm like, I thought we punched Nazis, right? Like, if that makes any sense, I, I, I thought we punched Nazis. I thought that we need, you know, for all the darkness, you need something to counteract it. And sometimes counteracting it doesn't look like the ways in which are respectable to you, Right, I don't know if that's making any sense what I'm saying, but it's like the same reason why I have issue with how like the squad has been treated. You know, AOC and Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib and uh, Ayanna Presley, so on and so forth. Is that like they're just basically like verbally like yeah, slap Nazis, slap Nazis, and and fight for the for the for the person who doesn't have the most marginalized of us. 
And the establishment, Nancy Pelosi especially, has tried to dismantle them, right? And I think that when you have people like that, like, you know, I've seen AOC in Harlem, right? I've just seen AOC at at dinner and just kicked it, right? When you have these people who actually can combat the right or even the, the libertarians who are just people who are right. But, you know, when you do have these people, they never get the support that they should, right? They never get lifted as they should. And they actually have to deal with battling both the right and oftentimes like the establishment left as well, right? So I don't know, I went on a, I went on a rant there, but. No, I think it's good. One of the conversations that I have quite a bit is this idea of do we, do we punch Nazis mm-hmm. or do we always assume a nonviolent approach to living? Um, and I think it's a, I think it's both and right. And B, I think the, I think I, I live a, I live a nonviolent life. Right. And I've never owned a gun. Never will. I mean, kill me. I fucking, I don't care. Like, I don't care, right? So that's the position I've taken. And when a Nazi gets punched, right. I understand it. Right. I completely understand it. And how else do you sometimes, um, like, we don't, we don't spank our kids. We, we don't do that. We talk to them. And sometimes I think, you're not listening, child. You're not listening to anything I'm saying. I know that if I smacked you, I'm not going to. And I'm saying this in my head, obviously. Like, I know if I just smacked you, right. it would wake you up. You would right. stop talking for a second, and you would listen to what I have to say. Right. So I get the mentality of some of these people, the Ben Shapiros, will not ever, right. unless God, God's self comes down and speaks directly to Ben Shapiro and says whatever, like, Ben Shapiro's never going to change. Right. But would Ben Shapiro stop talking for two seconds if he got slapped by you in the street to be like, wait a second, maybe I am, maybe I am putting on a a, a look here that isn't actually like reflective of who I am. Maybe I am trying to be smarter than how I actually am. Maybe I need to shut up. Right. Well, I I, I think that when we think of violence, right. And and this, this conversation isn't solely about violence. It's also about having great voices such as yourself. Um, But when we think of violence, I think that violence is never looked at in nuance, right? Because it's interesting to me how, you know, people, especially like, you know, people on the left, liberals, so on and so forth, are like, oh my God, we need to assassinate uh, Vladimir Putin. Oh my God, we need to just bomb Russia. I'm like, well, you do know there's plenty of, there's millions of innocent people there and so on and so forth. But but they're thinking of it because they, they, they're receiving violence in this way that makes sense to them because it's been, what's been fed to them their entire lives, right? Like nobody bats an eye when we go to these countries that are full of, you know, black and brown people um, or people living in poverty and we just like completely bring carnage, right? And that's a horrible thing. That's violence that I can't stand behind. And also, right, like I don't believe in spanking kids either. And also, when I see somebody, let's say, let's say a man in the street was like grabbing a woman, right? I'm not going to ask him nicely to stop, right? Because you are, you have now, you're, you're not only beyond boundaries, but now this is actually about her safety versus your safety, right? And I think that moments like that, like the moment that we are in, and 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 violence sometimes, and I'm not just talking about physical violence, I'm talking about like mental violence, emotional violence, so on and so forth, or even just like, just just being real, right? In, in a yeah. certain way, 
is so frowned upon by like structures and people who are so vested in their comfortability, right? Because again, if I was to, let's say Ben Shapiro was to, I don't know, um, let's use somebody else, gunman, right? Let's say, let's use it. Let's use a gunman, right? Let's say somebody who I know is bringing a gun somewhere. I don't really know what I'm going to do, but I do know, like, I don't, I don't own guns. I don't own weapons. I'm not a very violent person, but I'm going to try to save 10 children. 100%. Right? Like, and these are the things that I'm talking about where it's like, we are past the, we are past the point in certain instances of changing hearts and minds of certain people, right? Certain people are just not very good people. And so you have to, you have a duty to protect people who are good people or people who are just innocent, right? Like good, bad, whatever, just innocent of, of, of certain things, right? Like if someone said like, Hey, like Donald Trump, you know, someone beat Donald Trump up and he said he's not running for reelection. Okay, great. That's, that's really good. Yeah. Like, you know, yeah. like that's like, and that's just, and that, I don't know, like that's my perspective on the world. Like I, I, yeah, I, I view everything through that lens of like harm reduction and what helps cause harm reduction. Yeah. Because there are certain, even as someone who has chosen a nonviolent way of life, who won't have weapons in the home and, you know, God forbid someone breaks into my, like, I just won't, you know, maybe I'll try, I'll, I'll throw some shit at you. If, if <laughs> obviously if you're within arm's reach, I'm going to suppress you. Right. I will beat the shit out of you if I need to. I don't want to take your life. That would be the, right. that'd be the thing I would want to avoid at all costs. But yeah, the gunman situation, like if I'm in a store and there's an active shooter, I'm going to move heaven and earth to stop that person from killing one more person. Right. Right. So even as a nonviolent person, it would be all kinds of wrong for me to not act even if it results in violence when someone is actively getting hurt you mentioned you know a woman being hurt on the street by a man like no i'm not going to be like hey dude stop right no i'm going to chuck norris grab you around the neck and get you off of her right. and hold you down until the you know unfortunately we have yeah, to yeah, work within course, our yeah. system and yeah, call yeah, cops yeah, yeah, for no, now yeah, yeah, but for sure. um, until they get here to deal with this yeah so yeah it, it is I'm a nonviolent person that recognizes the nuances of of this the world we live in. Yeah, I mean it's it's difficult. And and I think, you know, I, I did an interview recently uh for NPR about patriarchy blues, and there's an essay in Patriarchy Blues about violence, as a matter of fact. Yep. And 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 specifically how, you know, my mother taught me uh to fight and you know, she taught me these lessons of like when to use violence, and then I kind of like you know, as I was getting older, got carried away and didn't really understand when and when not to use violence in certain instances. And and it was never against anyone um, who was innocent. Like, you know, I would be out on a Saturday night and, I, and like, let's say a guy um, was like, like, I, this is actually a real story. A guy had put um, roofies in a young woman's drink, right, in the Lower East Side. And I watched it happen. So I punched him in the mouth, right? Like, like I punched him clear in the mouth and I, but, and then when I punched him in the mouth, like my friends had to like stop me from like hitting him more because I'm so outraged that you would do this to a woman. But it, that was the, that right there is the example of like, you got to know when to stop and what is, you know, um, right for the moment, if you would. Um, but in the same instance, that punch to the mouth, I bet you, he doesn't try to roofie another woman. Ever. <laughs> right? Yeah. You know, so so there's just so many layers to it. But in that interview with NPR, you know, this woman um, who was also a very nonviolent person, she's like, hey, I don't believe in violence whatsoever. There's never an excuse for violence. And mm. she kind of like, 
she kind of was like um, chastising my mother almost for like teaching me violence. And I had to tell her like, well, you got to realize the most violent group in society has been white supremacists, right? So like if you're raising a black kid in our society, you almost have to teach violence in order to survive, right? This is, you know, so, and then she was like, oh my God, I have never thought of that. I'm like, you didn't read the book, but you know, <laughs> but yeah. Was this interviewer, I hate to ask, were they white? Or? Yeah, she was white. Woman. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that again, doesn't surprise me right, that a right. white woman would tell a black man and and ultimately your black mother, like, yeah, you, I know your experience better than you do. Right. And I'm going to tell you right. from my place of privilege as an NPR host, right? So you've had some good experiences in life and people right. that have probably introduced you. Like, I'm going to tell you how you should have, you know, raised your kid to live in a world where, um, I mean, at your age, yeah, like growing up was not easy. I mean, it's still not easy. I yeah, mean, yeah, yeah. every black kid in this city and everywhere still experiences that, but probably more so yeah, back yeah, in yeah. Rudy Giuliani's New York <laughs> and, you know, stop and frisk New York, right? Like yeah. where they, they they're, they're lawless now. They were even more lawless back then. Um, right. That's wild. Okay. So your story, one of the things that I want to hit on before we get into the books is your storyteller. That, uh, that's obvious. Um, we have stories mm -hmm. is your consulting company and a fund, yeah. right? A nonprofit fund. Tell me how that started. Yeah, I love, yeah. I love the name. I love the, the idea behind it. I love what you all are doing both from a work standpoint and from the fund standpoint. Um, yeah. Tell me how it came to be. Yeah. So, you know, as I mentioned earlier, um, you know, after getting my MBA, um, in marketing, I, I, I realized that one of the major gaps in, um, in our world is quite frankly storytelling, right? Like yep. a lot of black and brown um, people and a lot of marginalized people in general don't ever get the chance to tell their stories. But I do think at the core of changing hearts and minds, if that is your intent, is storytelling, right? Like I can't tell you how many kids from, for instance, like when I took kids to see Black Panther, how many white kids were like, oh my God, I want to go to Africa now. I want to learn more about Africa and it's at third, right? Where when I was growing up, Africa was the 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 punchline that people used, like especially like white kids, right? So like storytelling is extremely important. So we have stories. What we've done is I consult for like major corporations, let's say HBOs and things like that. And then we essentially take part of that money and just turn it right back around and do pro bono work for, you know, let's say a young black woman who's trying to start a dance studio mm. and she she doesn't know how to a from a business standpoint get it off the ground or um b know how to market it to people and know how to like get people to hear about it so we'll help out with both for free i love that in the in the is that is that also where the money for the fund is channeled through yeah 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 so also sometimes we also just give these grants so yeah. i left that out so we give like storyteller grants so people who are you know like like last year we gave uh, i believe $80,000 in grants just to like, one was to a poet who's just like, hey, I want to start this like poetry collective. We're like, hey, well, great. Thanks for the application. Here's $10,000 to get your poetry collective off the ground. You know, there's no, um, no strings attached or anything like that. It's like in a world where a lot of people have gotten the things they've gotten based on nepotism and not being black or brown. Here's a, here's a little help because we know that your story matters, your idea matters, and your art matters. So this is going to help, hopefully, help you in some capacity, um, get that out into the world and help change the world. I love that. And multiple times uh, throughout your career, but most actually, most recently, you have used your voice, 
and situations that have been happening in society mm. to raise lots and lots of money. Yeah. Right. And so there's the, you know, Black Panther challenge and the Captain Marvel challenge and the rent relief campaign. Talk about some of those things. Like, why did you, A, how the hell did you get that done? <laughs> and, and why did you, I mean, why did you do it? There's a lot going on. You probably were trying to figure out how to, you know, survive yourself and, you know, make money during a pandemic and all that. I, I went through that as well, yeah. you know, but you stuck your neck out there. And especially in these, I, I love, I love the, Black Panther challenge, like some people might be like, well, you raised all this money to send kids to see a movie. But how monumentally important was it to send those tens of thousands of children to see a movie where they can see themselves on the screen for maybe in an, in an action hero sort of way, not in a, you know, in a token, we've got our token black actor sort of way or whatever, but this is, you are the, 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 you are the superhero. Right. Um, So yeah, talk about some of those campaigns. Yeah. I mean, you know, for me, I've always had a gift for selling things, right? Like um, <laughs> one of my favorite lines um, in any song ever is Jay-Z sa- saying, um, I can sell ice in the winter, I can sell fire in hell, right? It's amazing. And and, and I, I, I feel like I've always had that gift. I, I remember being in high school um, and being on student government and, you know, we had like a can drive, right? And, you know, everyone was asked to bring cans to school. And um, I didn't I didn't raise any, I didn't, I didn't bring in any cans and I didn't get anyone to bring any cans. Why? Because I realized at the same time we had our can drive for houseless people, there was also this sale at ShopRite, which is a big supermarket called the Can Can Sale, where like can, where sale, like canned goods are like 10 for a dollar at the time. I'm pretty sure it doesn't exist anymore, but at the time it did. So instead of asking people to like lug cans to school, I asked everyone to give a dollar, right? So everyone gives a dollar. So I ended up raising uh, or collecting um, about 40 times more cans than everybody else on student government. And I've always had that kind of like, my mind has always worked in these ways of like, how can I use my gift of gab, persona, strategic mind, and like, I guess like likability to be a force for something. So I, I think that the Black Panther challenge first was like kind of like a direct tie to that, along with like, you know, oh, I have an MBA now. So I also have some connects in, in the marketing world, so on and so forth, and know how to build out a campaign. But it really was kind of just the like the the energy of like, yeah, we can take you can you can donate to um, you know, Boys and Girls Club and let's say maybe they take 10 kids to see the film, or I can build that entire story of how this film's important and this and third. And people will give $10, $20, $30 from around the world. And next thing you know, I think we ultimately raised like over a million and took like 70,000 kids worldwide to see the film, right? It's amazing. So like, I just I just understand how people's minds work. And that goes back to the importance of storytelling. Um, you know, and then I think later, you know, we did kind of the same thing with Captain Marvel. Um, and then when we got to the pandemic, it was funny. I, my, my, my fiance and I, we had raised... 40,000 for um a local um food pantry um but it didn't feel like enough right because i think there's so much red tape and and also when you have these like nonprofits what we found with like the nonprofit system right like the, the structure of most nonprofits is that like there's a lot of red tape right it's 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 very That's why i got yeah. out of the nonprofit space i was just so sick of begging borrowing and stealing for everything that we needed right right it's it, it's a lot of red tape it's very bureaucratic and it's very corporate in many ways right so what I was finding was like, oh, we raised this forty thousand dollars for I, I, again. I can't remember what food pantry it was, but um, something in New York City. 
And like people were like, oh, well, we're, we don't have enough workers. We have the money. But I'm like, okay, this is not going to work. So I asked myself, what do people need? People need money to do the things for themselves right now, right? So um, I created the rent relief campaign and I just basically told, you know, everybody on the internet who would listen, like, hey, if you donate money to this campaign, I will put up my own money and give it back in real time as the camp as the money's flowing in. So like I, I think I had to put up in the beginning something like a hundred thousand dollars. Um, but like I'm like, hey, in real time, I because I want it's almost like a case for support happening as you're watching right. it, right? So it's like if you needed help and you tweeted me and like I, you know, I chose you or happened to see you or whatever it is. And you're like, Hey, like I can really use some diapers right now. Um, and my kids don't have any formula and we don't have anything to eat in the house cause I just lost my job. Cool. Here's $200 directly to you. What would you prefer? Cash app, PayPal or Venmo, right? Um, send it to you and people are watching this happen. So everyone's like getting excited cause it also gave people something to galvanize around during the beginning of the pandemic where it's like, I want to help people. I have I have some extra, and I and I think that moments like that bring out the best in us as humans, right? So, yeah, yeah. I don't I, I don't know if that answers the question of like how or why, but um. No, I mean it does. You saw a need, you acted. Yeah, that's it. I mean, obviously, again, your persona, your influ- the the platform you'd already built helps, but I think people are waiting for. Not I think I know people are waiting for other people to take action. Yeah. Unfortunately, they should be taking action themselves, but we're all waiting for someone to lead the charge, right? Whether it's a pandemic or a school shooting or climate change or whatever it is, trying to free someone before they're uh, uh, state sanctioned, murdered, you know, uh, yeah. by the state. Like we're all looking for somebody to lead the way. And then you stand up and say, hey, I'm going to lead this campaign, hashtag whatever. And then people want to jump on board. As you said, they saw the giving happening in real time. And so they, jumped on board. And so you did answer my question. Uh, thank you. Okay. <laughs> Let's get into your book. Cool. Um, you've, you wrote, I'll briefly mention your first book and your forthcoming book at the end. Cool. Cool. Because I want people to read that one. And I'm so excited about that. I haven't read it yet, but the title of the new book, because yeah. we use that idea of leaving the planet better than you found it all the time with Let's Give a Damn. Yeah. It's it's why I live. It's why I get up in the morning and do what I do is because I ultimately want to leave what I have just better for the next generation and then hopefully, hoping to influence people to do that as well. So I love the title. Uh, but this book, um, a really, really good book. I love <laughs> the title. You. The title's really good, Reflections on Manhood. As we begin talking about this book, I think it probably, I think we need to define manhood, right? If the whole book is reflections on manhood and it's going to, we're going to talk about, you know, the book talks about rape culture and it talks about the patriarchy and it talks about therapy and it talks about your upbringing, your experience as a young black boy and growing up in this, in this world that we live in, all those things. I think I would want to start with what do you believe manhood is? Yeah, I mean, I, I think manhood is, is in, it's interesting. I think it's an amalgamation um, of many things, right? I think manhood in our society has a very different def- a very different definition than other societies. In our society, manhood is this this like for the most part this toxic, angry, hurt, yearning kind of thing, and rarely the best parts of manhood is something free and beautiful, 
right? But it's that's rare. I don't, I don't, and I don't know a lot of people who are there yet. But I think that manhood, you know, in our society, is something corrosive. Quite frankly, I think in our society right now, where we are, not every person, but the broad swath, is something very corrosive and painful, hurt and angry. Um, and this book endeavors to talk about how that happens, why it happens, where it's happening, and like what we can do differently. Um, because, you know, in all that, because I think manhood even is a, is a, manhood is a reflection of the patriarchy, right? Like the, pa- yeah, man, manhood in its current construct for the most part is a reflection of the patriarchy and the patriarchy is a reflection of the worst parts of us um, from toxic masculinity and misogyny onto transphobia and homophobia. Um, so yeah, it's, 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 it's many, many things. And I also think that the definition is different depending upon who you are. I love that you defined it that way. The lack of definition defining it because I'm so glad you went there because I agree as well. The, the conservatives, Right-wing uh, GOPers, there are so there are so many millions of men and women in this country that believe that masculinity and manhood are under attack by the left. Yeah. Right? Again, there's no, there's very little to no proof that that's actually happening. But they've made it a big selling point of being part of the right. Is hey, if you join, if you become a leftist, if you become a progressive, a liberal. They are going to strip you of your manhood. You're right. going to be demasculated. You're going to want to start wearing dress. Like you're going to start doing all these effeminate things. Right. And again, that doesn't happen because here we have two leftists right. sitting at this table, tatted up and pretty masculine. If if people yeah, yeah, were to yeah. look look at us, yeah. saying, "A, don't be like, don't run away from your manhood if you're a man. Yep. B, let's redeem that shit because it's been so just by the patriarchy that it's been so uh, it's been so altered. Yeah. And 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 C, which I again I want to go back to your lack of definition when I asked for a definition, is that it doesn't mean one thing. Right. It means a lot of things. It is open for us to talk about it. It is in a, and I think that makes whatever we end up defining manhood as, it's a healthy definition because it isn't, here it is. You know, we're going to open Webster's Dictionary, look up manhood. That definition is the only one. Therefore, if you don't fit in that, you're screwed. You're out. And that's just too, that is not the, that is not the, we don't live in a binary world. It's not black and white. Like most things, most things are gray. Most things are both and, not either or, right? right? And so I love that that is, throughout this book. Uh, you begin the book quoting uh, the great Fannie Lou Hamer, nobody's free until everybody's free. And I love that that also is a foundation for this book. You write, over the past few years, it has been the most important lesson I've learned. Liberation is a lie until every shackled soul one day finds themselves on the shore of freedom. That to me is an amazing way to start a book on reflections on manhood. These short stories, these poems, these reflections is by pointing out that what Fannie Lou Hamer and Dr. King and James Baldwin and many others have said, which is the reason that you're doing the work that you're doing, the reason this book is in print and we can read it, the reason I'm doing the work that I'm doing, the reason that these amazing humans that I just you know mentioned did the work that they did mm-hmm. is because until everyone is free, 
we don't get to stop. Right. We don't get to stop. We're going to take different paths to help out, to serve, to, you know, is for some people, this is a full-time job to, to do this work. For some, it's a part-time thing. But we don't, until everyone is free, no one's free. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, that's at the center of my entire worldview, really, right? And I, and I think it's the issue of our current society is that people don't understand that, right? And I, I think it's also in the definition of how to define patriarchy because a lot of people think of patriarchy in a binary way, right? And, right. I, and I think that that was very apparent um, even after the leaked um, decision on Roe v. Wade where a lot of cis, uh, cis women were like, oh, we're not going to use the term birthing people um, because, you know, these groups can't this. And they, I'm like, this is just transphobia. And, you know, this transphobia that you're spewing is inherently upholding the patriarchy that you think that you're railing against in other capacities, right? Um, you know, so I, I, my, my, entire, my entire worldview is very much, I don't care if I have all the comfort in the world if I can walk outside my home, if I can turn on my television, if I can open up social media and anybody is struggling, we have work to do. We have work to do. And we might have to unplug at certain times, right? Yeah, yeah. The, you end the book, which which is my favorite section. It, not my favorite, but it, it helped me the yeah, most. Yeah, yeah. Was this, you know, this idea of therapy as a, as a means for dismantling the patriarchy, yeah. right? And, and taking care of ourselves. So we'll get there, but I... I um, we're going to skip around the book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're going to skip around. Please. We're obviously not going to go through the whole thing. A, we can't do that. We would need, <laughs> we, would, we, would need we would need to sit here for a 24-hour conversation. And B, I want people to go get this book. But I loved, you know, it's Pride Month. Mm -hmm. Not that we just talk about LGBTQIA plus issues during this month. But we focus on it this month. We celebrate these amazing humans. We remind them that they are loved and cared for and accepted just as they are. Mm -hmm. And so in, in, in the spirit of that, um, you have a chapter uh, titled The False Binary. Yeah. And I want to read this first little section. We'll talk about it. And I want to bring up this um, clip that went, I would assume it was categorized under viral by Bill Maher uh, from a couple weeks ago. Um, so you, you begin by saying, they stood up at the podium in front of the entire world and said, gender is fake, sexuality is a spectrum, and I will identify as who I am not who you can wrap your mind around. Thank you. They walked off stage and there was a silence. A moment later, the liberals and conservatives locked arms and rushed toward the stage to set the podium on fire, hoping to make sure their children weren't next. That's a fucking like, that's a baller <laughs> opening, <laughs> opening, uh, <laughs> opening statement for this, for this chapter. So powerful. Um, and I love also that you have in there that the liberals and conservatives charged the stage, hoping their children weren't next. Because again, like most things, it's not a left or right, right. necessarily. Right. In both parties, in all parties, in all of these groups, you can find people that will that are establishment and will remain establishment. Yeah. But so in, in the spirit of of what I just read, um, uh, yeah, it was like two weeks ago. Um, there was this clip that went viral on Twitter. I didn't watch the whole episode because I rarely, if ever, watch Bill Maher for obvious reasons. I, 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 every once in a while, Bill will say something that I like really like. Mm. But most of the time, 
I cannot stand how much that guy loves pushing buttons with no solution in mind, right? It's a, it's a very hard, the way that he presents himself and the way he does his show is very hard for me to watch because it, it I mean, there's no actual resolution at the end. Right. It's a lot of troublemaking, right? But Bill, a, a self-proclaimed liberal, uh, says this. If this spike in trans children is all biological, why is it regional? Either Ohio is shaming them or California is creating them. And people in the crowd clapped. Uh, Many, 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 many conservatives shared it, you know, and also clapped on social media. And the answer is, it's so obvious to anyone with half a fucking brain is that, no, first of all, this is such a dumb question. It's, It's a dumb proposition. And you're smarter than that. So I know you shared it knowing that it was going to get shared. You shared it for the clicks and the likes. And you shared it knowing, I would have to imagine, you shared it knowing that more trans kids will get bullied as a result of this video. More trans kids might hurt themselves as a result of this video. It is not that California is creating them. It is 1,000% that Ohio and Wisconsin and Tennessee and Alabama and Oklahoma and Texas and South Carolina are shaming them, right? This is not even a, it's such a dumb question, such a dumb premise. So having heard that, I don't know if you saw that online, but having, you know, heard my, my telling of that in this chapter, like, how in this conversation about manhood and in light of what I just read about this false binary and what in talking about this Bill Maher clip, like where are we at right now in terms of those of us that are part of manhood, right? Yeah. And do identify as men and, and do have a, 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 a responsibility to dismantle the patriarchy within our lifetime. How do we process that? Yeah, I, I think we're in a horrible place right now um, because we've we've had patriarchy for a very long time, and you know these these manifestations of patriarchy, whether it's you know manifestations of rape culture, toxic masculinity, so on and so forth, have have existed for a long time. But now that you have people pushing back, let's take like people like you and myself, right? Um, now that you have people pushing back and wanting to offer something different the others are becoming far more vapid, if you would, right? You know, you have someone like like Bill Maher who, like you said, his words aren't just going to go viral. They're going to potentially um, be the reason why trans children die. Right. Right. And, 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 and I think that, again, the position that we're in is that people, people have taken their sides and our side, our side, you know, thinking of let's say you myself, um, is weaker right now. Uh, you know, like even using the you know patriarchy blues as a book. The book debuted on the, the bestseller list, um, and it was off immediately the, the week after. Right? It couldn't it couldn't sustain um, because no one, both uh, like in all capacities, no one is interested. Um, and, you know, doing media really for the book, like not any major outlets or, you know, so on and so forth. They're just like, yeah, we don't, this is not what people, we don't want our, nope. (laughs) Like, you know, and, 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 but instead Bill Maher will go viral for something that is absolutely toxic. Um, 
and and just in disingenuous also because like you said I, like I don't think he's that intelligent I've actually never watched his show I've just seen clips of him over the years um, but he is but he is smarter than that right like you you made the point because you know the answer um, yes it is. It, it, it isn't that there's, you know, just suddenly more trans kids in New York versus Florida. It's that in Florida, they are literally um, pulling kids out of schools and kids are getting beaten and they are burning books that self-affirm um, or rather affirm their identity. Right. So so it is that. Um, but. You know, so yeah, so I guess to answer the question fully, we're we're in a bad place. We're in a bad place, and I and I think that we have to have an honest conversation about it and figure out what to do because it's not. Yeah, my book literally could have just never made the best solos, and that, that would would have been fine, right? But like somebody, some collective has to be lifted to do the work and combat what we're seeing because if not, we are going to continue losing. Yeah, yeah. How do we, there's a lot of, one of the frustrating things about Pride Month, it's all good. My wife actually just said the other day, she was like, I'm so glad it's Pride Month again. Like everything that happens during Pride Month is just so fun and we get to talk to our kids more. You know, they're, they're fully on board with all the things that we've taught them so far, but we get to take them to things and they get to see more things and be, exp- you know, be exposed to more, more amazing people that are part of the LGBTQ family. So Pride Month is, we're big fans of it, but also it gets used at, for, for marketing. Uh, there's a, oh, who was it on Instagram? Posted, it was in the UK, and there was just these simple bottles of like Vaseline lotion. Mm-hmm. And the one that didn't have a Pride sticker on top of it, so it was like a round, like, round little, uh, like a little metal container, and so there was one without, same, same identical product, 20 grams of this Vaseline. The one that didn't have the Pride sticker on it was um, one pound. It was a dollar, whatever. It was a dollar. And the one that did have the sticker on it, literally identical products. They put a sticker on it, a round, a circle sticker right on top. It was $1.95. So lit, that was it. I, I looked, I zoomed in. 20 same size, same product, aloe vera, this, that. And so it, 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 it does get used. I mean, there are, I mean, how many logos got changed yesterday, right? And I'm not saying that's all bad. I think there are ways that we should be supporting uh, these amazing people, but like how many logos in social media bios got changed yesterday? So how in the midst of both millions of Americans uh, opposing uh, these amazing humans right to even exist, Right, so that's happening. And then you have all this gratuitous, just lavish but uh, uh, fake marketing ploys happening, right? You have all this stuff going on. How can we truly help, truly make a difference, knowing that all those realities are taking place, knowing that trans kids will feel enormous amounts of pressure this month, uh, again, from both sides, from all the voices and all the things that they're receiving. Mm-hmm. Um, how, how do we how do we do this better? Yeah, I, I'd say take actions that are actually going to create 
systemic change, right? And and there's so there's so many things that you can do. Like you know, I, I love pride. I like like you said, I I I love the energy, especially in New York City. I love oh, it's it. so amazing. Yeah, I, I love the energy of pride. Um, but it's it's very similar to you know Black History Month, right? Where it's like. Sure, you can, you know, invite, you know, invite me in to come, you know, talk to your staff during Black History Month, and then I'll hear from you next February, right? Um, As if there aren't things happening all year, as if, you know, like during Pride, there aren't, you know, the the don't say gay um, policies in Florida two months before, three months before, as if Ron DeSantis isn't going to potentially run for president, you know, all these different things that, that are happening, take real action, Right. Like take action that can actually create change, like using like Bill Maher's example, like just when he said that, I would have loved to seen a, a bunch of people like I'm sure people like, you know, did the Twitter thing and whatnot. Sure. Um, but but I the would, guests on the show. Jesus. Right. Should have should have interrupted. Right. 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 That's exactly what I'm talking about. Right. Yeah. I, again, I haven't seen it, but it's like, no. Right. Like and he's on what HBO. Yeah. Yeah. It's like like HBO also has. um Multiple like shows that are like focused on uh, the LGBTQ um, IA plus community, like right, like it's like wait, what? Yeah, right. Like some someone needs to actually speak up and like hold them accountable, right? I would love to see a petition against HBC HBO HBO and against Bill Maher, right? If that's the case, right? Um, I would love to see a collective of people who are especially cishet people who I, I constantly say we need to step up. Right. Like it's not enough for us to be like, oh, I'm really support you. Like, yay, wave my flag. And, you know, no. Like, I want to actually see people held accountable. Right. Like, I like, you know, even like outside of this conversation, you know, what what happened with um, you know, uh uh in Texas when when Beto O'Rourke went to um Greg Abbott and Ted Cruz's conference. It was like, this is your fault, right? That's the energy. Like yeah. that's what I'm talking about. This is your fault. Yeah. Right. And I'm going to say it publicly and I'm going to say it loudly and it's not performative because I've seen him do it other times too. Right. This is your fault. So now my question to people in Texas and around the country is what are you doing to support Beto against Greg Greg Abbott? Yeah. Right. And things like that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the I can I can sum up everything you just said in actually take action, right. like real action. Right. Buy your fucking flag. I don't care. Buy your flag, hang it up in the window, buy your T-shirt, change your, your profile picture. Those are all fine and well. Right. But if that's all you do and you're not giving to the Trevor Project or you are not uh, befriending your trans neighbor that needs friends and really being a support system for them and you're not, you know, and you're not showing up to vote for uh, – uh, progressive candidates that yep. you know are going to make the right decisions, yep. then shut up. Is it, that's exactly Stop it. Stop with the performance. That's exactly it. And, and I think that we saw so much of it um, around, you know, the 2020 protests, right? Like, you know, I was protesting just down the block from here um, many times and being pepper sprayed by police and, you had these, you know, a lot of people coming out and doing photo shoots to say that they were there and things of that nature. And and it's like either really do something or get out the fucking way. Yeah. Right? Yep. No, I totally agree. Um, for the sake of time, let us keep moving. Yeah, yeah. My favorite part of the book, as I mentioned earlier, was the 
last section titled Building Anew. Mm -hmm. Because again, we can, we have spent a lot of this conversation sharing frustrations, sharing worries, Mm -hmm. sharing how hard it is to do this work, sharing how much resistance we do get and will continue to get uh, for doing this kind of work. But the reality is in, in, in all the issues that we have talked about and in light of this book, Reflections on Manhood and Dismantling the Patriarchy, it cannot happen until we, leftists, and them, right-wingers, and everybody in between, all the men and all those considering that are part of this conversation on manhood, until we get healed. Right. Right? Nothing. Right. The right. anger only goes so far. Right. The, the yelling only goes so far. Even the clear solutions only go so far right. if we are not healed right no and we've got to break the cycle of hurt people hurt people Mm -hmm. we've got to become healed people who heal people and but but we miss that we miss that so much why why are we missing getting that far why are men and all those involved in the conversation around manhood we get to this point and then and again i think more I, i do want to acknowledge that more people than ever in the history of ever are in therapy and are getting help but it's not enough right we're seeing that we're seeing right. that in, in the politicians, in the world leaders, in the business leaders, right? There are people trying to buy social media platforms instead of going to therapy, right? Like right. there's a lot of things happening and it seems like men by and large refuse to get healed and refuse to be part of this building a new sort of idea. Why? I mean, because it's not advantageous for many men to do so, right? Or for these systems, you look at you 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 look at um what's his name um Madison Cawthorn is oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. there is a lot there right and I'm not going to go into all that but there's a lot there there's a lot that was happening with him and he's faced now um it, you know uh, after photos leaked of him um I guess he was cross dressing I'm not really sure um how he identifies whatever but like he received a lot of homophobia and and things of that nature and I'm just like man this is probably someone who's just a really sad and angry kid he's traumatized right somebody yeah, yeah. hurt him yeah over and over and over right. again right and and because of that you have now become this white supremacist garbage right and 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 that's not solely his fault it was designed in part by you know that those white supremacist structures that he's helping uphold for him to help uphold them right like i've seen what happens when people heal when people heal other people lose power Mm. right so there is so there is a there is a focus on people not being able to heal right like i think one of the most powerful um or one of the most powerful people in history uh you know as as an orator as a thinker as a as just a presence here was uh fred hampton and you know for those who are not familiar fred hampton was a, a black panther he was actually the head of the black panthers in chicago um and he was murdered by the fbi he was i believe uh 21 or 22 when he was murdered in his house with his um he was in the house with his wife and his um newborn and um a bunch of other black panthers anyway the point is what made fred hampton so special is that fred hampton saw what all of us have in common he saw the common denominator right of poverty of struggle of needing to heal so when he was talking about oh we need to 
bring down the man, he wasn't just talking to black people. He was talking to white people. He was talking to Latinx people. He was talking to indigenous people, people who are all struggling, right? And saying like, listen, that Confederate flag that you're waving, that you know, that that robe in your closet that was handed down by your daddy hasn't done nothing but leave you in a lurch, right? What does it look like for us all to come together, us all to think about what's happening in front of us, us all to heal and then go to the establishment and say enough together? Mm-hmm. And that's where we are right now. That's what we need right now, especially amongst cishet men. Right. You're so angry. Like a lot of uh, and I know this because I'm, I'm around a lot of guys, a lot of guys who are extremely homophobic or guys who have had horrible experiences with sexual abuse. hundred percent. Right. Yep. What does it look like before the homophobia, before the transphobia for that that man to have been a boy who got help? Right. And a lot of times people who are. um Sexual abusers are people who were sexually abused, right? This is a cycle. This is, this is, this is, it's all, it's all, it's all a cycle. It's, it's a vicious cycle that's eating us all alive. And nowhere in that cycle right now is the necessary healing to stop us from continuing it. Yeah. I spoke um, with Alok, mm-hmm. uh, an amazing non-binary uh, activist and leader. A couple weeks ago, right here, and that interview will come out in a couple weeks. But what I'm so constantly surprised at is people that have been marginalized and hurt, whether because of their skin color or their sexual orientation or whatever. So many times they are the most grounded, mm-hmm. they are the most at peace, um, the strongest. And one thing they said that has stuck with me, and that was one of my favorite parts of the conversation, was. They said in my 20s, I spent a lot of time speaking to and helping uh, people that identified as women. And I think in my 30s, I need to spend time helping men. Mm -hmm. And I thought, yes, Mm -hmm. a thousand percent. Mm -hmm. Because they said I was coming on strong about, you know, different people that have said very homophobic, transphobic things. And... Alok pointed out multiple times in really compelling ways that, hey, I'm convinced, I'm paraphrasing, but they said, I'm convinced that if we just shut the fuck up for a year and all went to therapy, all went to therapy, Mm -hmm. the Ted Cruz's, the Greg Abbott's, the Elon Musk's, you, me, every, the Donald Trump's, like if we all went to therapy and found healing and reconnected and grounded ourselves and got healed, that a lot of the things that were issues that we were fighting about before that were over your thinking, well, this is, it's obvious, the solution to this, Mm -hmm. right? If we all just got healed, if we all just found, if we all became part of this building a new movement, fixing whether it's our, whether it's income inequality, or transphobia, or our the police, our policing, horrific policing system, or whatever it is, will be much easier. Because we're all working out of, we're all talking and yelling and screaming and typing and tweeting out of our hurt and pain and our unresolved yeah. shit. Yep. Yeah. I mean, 
you know, I say this oftentimes, the people who I'm like, and this is one of the reasons I, I'm, I'm slowing down with arguing with people on social media and whatnot. Um, I'm trying to. Yeah, I don't, a lot of times I don't have the time anymore, but like generally I just, it's not good for me because I'm like, you know, a lot of these people, A, they've never really even thought about the thing that they're arguing about when this is my life to think about this, right? B, it's not even them arguing, right? This person who's 30, 40, 50 years old, whatever, it's a seven-year-old I'm arguing with, right? This is the seven-year-old version of this person so who, who dealt with something that we are, that's not being named in this argument or named in this conversation, right? Like, and I, and I think that that's across the board. You know, when, you know, a lot of times when people, are, like, I see people say things like, oh, all, like, all men are horrible. And I, well, that makes sense to me because I'm sure that somebody's hurt you very deeply. So your statement is not necessarily about me. And this is why I, even when, when people be like, oh, not all white people, like, think about that for a second, right? Like, oh, not all white people. You're saying white people is that third. Yeah, I am saying white people because... I'm 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 talking about the structure, right? But somebody somewhere is so hurt because they think that they're a good person, or they're hurt because they've seen something happen, or they're hurt because of the same third that we can't even talk about what our hurt is, right? Like so I'm because totally. I'm not talking about let's say you Ashley, let's <laughs> you Ashley who is a white woman. I'm not talking about you. Ashleys are always white. Yes, they are. But I'm talking about all the white women who have hurt me when I say what I'm saying, right? And I don't think that you're talking about me when you say, oh, men are not shit. I think you're talking about the men who hurt you, but can we name these things in this conversation so that we can help change each other's minds and do act and create and take action that legitimizes those minds that are changed, you know? Yeah, I do know. I think that's, I think that's spot on. Um, yeah, it's. I think we've got a lot, we've got so much. That's a really great point. We've got so much healing to do, and a lot of it comes with just lowering our defenses, realizing that even if we're not totally healed yet, we realize where we've come from, what mm-hmm. we've been through, and we just stop being so defensive about everything when we are lumped in. You know, if you were, you know, uh, yeah, when we are lumped into these conversations yeah. as as white people or Latinx people or black or brown or trans or whatever, or straight, whatever, like, just be okay right. living in that sort of like, well, that's not me. Well, no, we're talking about the whole, right? right. We've got to, we've got to get better about like lowering our defenses and being okay with feeling uncomfortable right. as these important conversations are taking place. I have so much more I want to talk about. Um, but let's end talking about this book with uh, the beginning of this chapter, What Was Made Maybe Broken. You say, you write, he told the readers, patriarchy has a beginning and as a result can have an end. As we must imagine and plot the course of history and how it came to be, we must have bolder imaginations in plotting to dismantle it. How hopeful do you feel that in your lifetime, let's just say you live a long and healthy life, <laughs> 70, 80 more years, right? Mm-hmm. You take some magic pill that Elon makes for you and maybe we, <laughs> maybe we live a little longer. Uh-huh. You live a full and happy life. Do you, with where things are, the, the, the level at, or the, the pace at which people are getting healed, having reasonable conversations, getting shit done, do you think it's our generation that by and large sees this old guard and sees these patriarchal ideas die off again not entirely they'll always yeah, be yeah, here yeah. but for the most part or is that or is this 
or are we still several generations away? It, it pains me to say it, but I think we're several generations away. And I, and I think that because I, I don't think I thought this even when I wrote the book. You know, as I don't know if a lot of people know, when you write a book, you actually like finish a book typically like a year at least before it, before it's ever out, unless you're like. Which is the most frustrating part because you're like, I might think differently or <laughs> yeah, like society yeah. could change during that time. Right, right, right. But um, But I didn't necessarily think that when I wrote the book, but I think it now because I, I actually think it's been like the whole conversation around free speech, cancel culture, and, and like this like libertarianism has like, really left me disappointed mm. um, because what we've seen is that, you know, for the harm that people have caused, I'm talking about like everybody, you're not just talking about like pertaining to any particular thing, like across the board, when people have caused harm, now people are leaning into defensiveness, it seems. And that's how like, you know, you even get the like the trending idea of, of cancel culture, whether it's Dave Chappelle um, harming trans people um, with his jokes or it's um, Joe Rogan, um, you know, saying the N word 27 times or, you know, all these different people. And people supporting them, right? Because people are afraid, I think, of being held accountable because change, that's a key part of change is accountability, right? Like if people listen to this conversation between you and I and it was something that I said or something that you said that wasn't okay or, you know, hurt someone, we should be willing to listen and, and just 100%. change, and just change, right? Yep. And just change. And we have a society right now where maybe it's the establishment, maybe it's, you know, as part of the establishment, the media, I'm not really sure, but we are raging against that like absolutely raging against it right so much so that last night and i know we gotta get out of here but so much so that last night i was i was a part of a book club um a, a bunch of white women talking about patriarchy blues and um, i've been a part of their club before uh to talk about my first book and one of them said something and i was like yep that's it she's like you know i thought a lot of my friends i didn't think they were as like you know far left as i am or anything like that but you know i've found that i can't speak to them anymore because you know since 2020 and kind of more communities asking for accountability right like the trans community and indigenous communities latinx community so on and so forth more communities asking for accountability and just respect Right, like baseline, like something like you know, adding pronouns to your bio—that's just respecting and making you know someone else know that they're welcome. Um, but since that, she's like, a lot of my friends are tired of feeling like they're walking on eggshells and can no longer be at sixty-five who they were at twenty-five, and so they are turning to right-wing politics. I was like, okay, yeah, that makes sense. Totally. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Scarily, it makes sense. Yeah. You know, Dr. King said very famously that the moral arc of history is long, but it bends toward justice. And I believe that. I believe that. And I also think that he probably thought that he would see more change in his lifetime. Yeah. Even, if the, even if the moral arc of history, you know, bends toward justice, like maybe, you know, he didn't know that he would be assassinated way sooner than he, you know, should have been, should have left the earth. And so as much as I hope you're wrong, yeah. I think you're right. Yeah. That that's the reality that we're in and that sure we must fight hard to dismantle the patriarchy in our lifetime. But I think our kids and their kids, maybe their kids will still be fighting with some of these like harmful 
ideologies that are so, still so pervasive in culture that you would think would have worn off by now because they just don't make any sense. But they're here. They feel like they're here to stay. Yeah. Um, and that sucks. Yeah, it does suck. But I but I have hope for the future. You know, I think that right now, you know, as dark as before the dawn, I think white supremacy, in my opinion, is more potent at this moment than it was when I was a kid. Um, just like this, like... True. Like... Because it's become almost like normalized, like oh, well, it's cool. Are, yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's, yeah. There's fucking merch for it. Man. Yeah, yeah. There's merch for white supremacy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yep, yep, yep. Even there's merch for for the patriarchy now, right? It's like like oh, get you a real man. And there's you know because of you know people being um, internalizing misogyny and things like that. There's a lot of women supporting it, right? So all that to say, I I, I think that again, it's darkest before the dawn, and I have so much faith in the future and I will do what I can while I'm here to to help blaze a path or or chart a way or cut down the the weeds in front of the future, you know, but um I think we, we have a lot of work to do. Couple rapid fire questions as we wrap up here. Um so try to keep it to a few words or yep. a sentence at the most. Uh favorite author, whether that's now or of all time, somebody that you're really digging now or of all time. James Baldwin. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. Fucking like, there's so much to consume there. Uh, favorite book or a book that everyone should read right now besides Patriarchy Blues? Uh, the Prophets by Robert Jones Jr. Amazing. My wife is reading it right now. Favorite music, musical artist? Um, difficult. Um, Donny Hathaway. I don't know Donny Hathaway. You'll have to, I'll, I'll I, have to send you some Donny Hathaway. Fantastic. Uh, favorite activist, somebody that you look up to as fuel for getting shit done in the world? Uh, they have to be alive or? No, could be either. Oh, Malcolm X. I have a Malcolm X tattoo. So, yeah. Love it. <laughs> favorite thing about New York City? Mm. Man, that's difficult. I love this city. Um, the I would say the hours when the city is waking up, just being outside and just seeing, I think that's when the people who like make the city run are actually coming out. You know, the, 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 the essential workers and the people who are opening the cafes and, you know, those people when the sun is rising and the, and the, and the people who like really actually are at the core of what makes the city special are coming out to start the day. That's my favorite time of the day. And that's my favorite part of the city. Least favorite thing about New York City? Um, Staten Island. <laughs> I love it. You are, you are not alone. There are if you type if you type in some version of that to YouTube, there are hundreds of videos uh, that would share your sentiment. As we wrap up here, first of all, thank you so much. Thank you. This book, your work, very helpful for me and for all of us. Um, Briefly talk about your new book that's coming out. So yeah, I, I, yeah. we're going to link to Patriarchy Blues. Want people to get that. But again, this book is coming very soon. You have two books coming out in a year. That's kind of cool. So mention that and where you want people to, after this conversation, they never heard of you before. What do you want them to go look for? Yeah. Um, so I actually have two more books coming out this year. But um, what? yeah, yeah, yeah. One of them is, yeah. So um, Better Than We Found It, uh, that is co-authored with uh, my soon-to-be wife, uh, Portia. Um, and that is essentially us tackling everything that we can and trying to leave our mark um, from gun violence to military industrial complex, transphobia, homophobia, healthcare reform, prison 
prison industrial complex, so on and so forth, um, disinformation, education. We have 18 chapters, and in each chapter, we interview, we write we write a story to help conceptualize it for young people, and then we interview people who have, like, a very, like, either either have a lot of experience or have... Um, or, or, or master at that thing. So, for example, disinformation. Um, I write that chapter, and I interview Chelsea Clinton because she has wonderful thoughts on disinformation. You know, Pizza Gate and whatnot. Um, talking about what her mom is going through, what she's going through. Um, education chapter is written by uh, Portia, and she interviews Elizabeth Warren. Um, Julian Castro is in the chapter on immigration, so on and so forth. So, and the second book, um, I actually got the chance to write. The tie-in book, which is canon, for those of you who are nerds, you should know what canon is. Uh, so the tie-in book to Black Panther 2. Um, so I wrote, the, I wrote the children's book for Black Panther 2, which comes out the week before the film in November. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> and uh, what's your website, just so people can go? Oh, yeah. They can, so, they can um, get everything there. Yes, yes, yes. So um, everybody can go to frederickjoseph.com or just follow me on Twitter or Instagram at Fred T. Joseph. Thank you so much. This was amazing. Thank you. Thank you. Fellow damn givers, thank you for showing up and spending some time with Fred and me this week. To find links for everything mentioned in today's conversation and to keep up with all things Let's Give a Damn, visit letsgiveadam.com. Please share this episode with a friend. Please leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And please show up next week. We have so many more incredible conversations coming your way. Chad Snavely, Jess Collins, and the incredible team at Sound On Studios made this episode. The music is by our friend Propaganda. You can reach out anytime and for any reason at hello at letsgiveadam.com. I love you all. Be safe. Keep giving a damn. Bye for now.